Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, What Are You Asking? And it's based upon the lectionary readings from March 20th, 2022, the third Sunday in Lent. How many times over the past two years have you asked or heard someone else ask, why? Why is the COVID pandemic lasting so long? Why are so many people dying? Why can't we make progress when it comes to climate change? Why are thousands of young people in our country depressed and anxious? Why do tyrants in our world go unchecked? Why are nations embroiled in war? I suppose to ask why is to be human. We can't help ourselves. We want to understand. We want to make sense of the world. We want our lives to be logical, reasonable, orderly, sane. So it's worth pausing over the fact that Jesus spends very little time on earth addressing this fundamental human question. In fact, he actively discourages his followers from asking it. In a beautiful book of narrative theology, In the Shelter, Finding Welcome in the Here and Now, poet and healer Padre Gotuma describes the Buddhist concept of mu, or unasking. If someone asks a question that's too small, flat, or confining, Otuma writes, you can answer with this word mu, which means unask the question, because there's a better question to be asked, a wiser question, a deeper question, a truer question, a question that expands possibility and resists fear. If I could sum up this week's gospel reading in a single word, I would adopt Otuma's mu. I would even argue that mu is a concept near and dear to Jesus' heart. We're the ones who want to pin Jesus down for answers. He's actually more interested in helping us ask better questions. As St. Luke describes a scene, some folks come to Jesus with headline news of horror and tragedy. Pontius Pilate has slaughtered a group of Galilean Jews and mingled their blood with the blood of sacrificial lambs. Meanwhile, the Tower of Siloam has collapsed, crushing and killing 18 people. The reporters accompany these brutal accounts with the question we know so well. Why? Why did these terrible things happen? Why is there so much pain in the world? Why does a good God allow human suffering? Jesus' response? Mu. Ask a better question. For 2,000 years, questions of theodicy have plagued Christianity. And for 2,000 years, we Christians have failed to find answers to satisfy us. Yet we can't stop asking the questions. We still crave a theory of everything when bad stuff happens. We still look for formulas to eradicate mystery and make sense of the senseless. As Luke's gospel makes clear, the people who ask Jesus their versions of the why question already have an answer in mind. They don't approach Jesus with a blank slate. They come expecting Jesus to verify their deeply held belief that people suffer because they're sinful, that folks get what they deserve, that bad things happen to bad people. It's tempting for us to look at such ancient beliefs and feel smugly superior in comparison. But how different, really, are the beliefs we hold about human suffering? When the unspeakable happens, what default settings do we revert to? Nothing happens outside of God's plan. God is growing your character through this tragedy. Don't worry, the Lord never gives anyone more than they can bear. Nothing is ever lost. Buck up, other people have it worse. The problem with every one of these answers is that they hold us apart from those who suffer. They keep us from embracing our common lot, our common brokenness, our common humanity. When Jesus challenges his listeners' assumptions and tells them to repent before it's too late, I think part of what he's saying is this. 
Any question that allows us to keep a sanitized distance from the mystery and reality of another person's pain is a question we need to unask. Moo, Jesus says to the folks who bring him the painful news about Pilate and Siloam. Moo, he says to us when we batter God with why instead of offering God our hands and feet, our hearts and souls. Moo, he insists, when we wax eloquent about other people's suffering, but do nothing to alleviate it. Moo, you're asking the wrong questions. You're mired in irrelevance. You're losing your life in your effort to save it. Start over again. Ask a better question. Go deeper. Be braver. Draw closer. Repent, which means change your mind. Turn around. Head in a different direction. Okay, but what is the better question? If asking why won't get us anywhere, what kind of question will? In typical fashion, Jesus addresses the problem with a story. A landowner has a fig tree planted in his vineyard, Jesus tells his listeners. One day, the landowner goes looking for fruit on the tree and finds none. Incensed, he confronts his gardener. For three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, he says, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it waste the soil? But the gardener begs his employer for more time. Sir, let the tree alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not you can cut it down. What an odd story to tell at such a moment. What on earth does a fruitless fig tree have to do with Pilate's heinous killing spree, or with the massive technological failure that topples the Tower of Siloam? What is Jesus saying? Well, for starters, he's saying, engage in story rather than platitude. Platitudes are flat. Formulas are reductive. Theories don't heal. And questions that call for shallow answers aren't worth asking in the face of tragedy. But stories? Stories open up possibility. Stories include, unmake, and transform us. Why did those Galilean Jews die? Why did the tower fall? Okay, sit down. Let me tell you about a fig tree. The parable Jesus tells invites questions in several directions at once. I can't possibly exhaust them. None of us can. But here are a few to get us started. In what ways am I like the absentee landowner? standing apart from where life and death actually happen? How am I refusing to get my hands dirty, wallowing in futility and despair, pronouncing judgments I have no right to pronounce? Am I prone to look for loss, waste, and scarcity in the world, or for potential and possibility? Where in my life or in the lives of others have I prematurely called it quits, saying, there's no life here worth cultivating, cut it down? In what ways am I like the fig tree, unenlivened, unnourished, unable or unwilling to nourish others? In what ways do I feel helpless or hopeless, ignored or dismissed? What kinds of tending would it take to bring me back to life? Am I willing to receive such intimate, consequential care? Will I consent to change? Might I dare to flourish in a world where I have thus far been invisible? Have I become complacent when it comes to repentance and amendment of life, assuming that I have limitless time to become fruitful? Have I forgotten that the same patient God who gives me another year to thrive will also someday call me to account? In what ways am I like the gardener? Where in my life am I willing to accept Jesus' invitation to go elbow deep into the muck and manure? Where do I see life or others see death? How willing am I to pour hope into a project I can't control? Am I brave enough to sacrifice time, effort, love, and hope into this tree, this relationship, this cause, this tragedy, this injustice, with no guarantee of a fruitful outcome. Can I, in the words of Bishop Ken Untener, be the prophet of a future not my own?
I won't lie, I'm a pro at asking the why question. Why is the question I stick in God's face whenever bad stuff happens? I ask it more often than all the other questions combined. I ask because I want to understand. I ask because I'm afraid. I ask because mystery unnerves me. And yet every time I ask why, Jesus says, moo. He says, moo, because why is just plain not a life-giving question. Why hasn't the fig tree produced fruit yet? Um, here's the manure and here's a spade. Get to work. Why do terrible, painful, completely unfair things happen in this world? Um, go weep with someone who's weeping. Go fight for the justice you long to see. Go confront evil where it needs confronting. Go learn the art of patient, hope-filled tending. Go cultivate beautiful things. Go look your own sin in the eye and repent of it while you can. In short, imagine a deeper story. Ask a better question. Live a better answer. Time is running short. The season to bear fruit has come. Repent. Do it now. For books this week, Dan reviews Who We Are and How We Got Here, Ancient DNA and the New Science of the Human Past by David Reich. The history of scientific advances has in many ways been driven by game-changing technologies. One thinks of the invention of the microscope, how radiocarbon dating transformed archaeology, the discoverer of penicillin, or in our own day, gene editing. The Harvard geneticist David Reich has helped to pioneer another scientific revolution, the mapping of the human genome that began with the Human Genome Project in 1990 and was declared complete in 2003. But even as recently as 20 years ago, says Reich, we were still in the dark ages of DNA, whereas today is a different story. In particular, Reich's book explains how our newfound ability to extract and analyze DNA from ancient fossils has rewritten our study of humanity's ancient past. The big takeaway from his book is that any claim of racial purity is absurd. Rather, humanity's ancient history has been defined by successive and massive waves of mixing, matching, and migrations among otherwise highly divergent population groups. The idea of a fixed or immutable race is scientifically untenable, as is the idea that race is merely a social construct and not biologically based. By analyzing the DNA from ancient fossils, Reich and his colleagues reconstruct our prehistory across both time and space. To take just one example, we now know that because of interbreeding long ago, today a non-African person's genome is about 1.5 to 2.1% Neanderthal in origin. There are numerous practical, political, and ethical consequences of this DNA revolution. And in the third part of his book, Reich addresses several of these. Scientific and cultural stereotypes about the implications of genetics on biological nationalisms, genetic risk factors and health disparities among different ethnic groups, physical differences like skin color or average height, caste systems based on geographic ancestry, cognitive and behavioral traits, personal ancestry testing like 23andMe, gender inequality, and the insistence that race is a social construct rather than scientifically based. Reich explains these controversies with clarity and compassion and often shares his own story of being part of a particular population group, the Ashkenazi Jews. But however controversial, he insists that we must never let old scientific orthodoxies or political correctness stand in the way of the power of hard data to overturn our assumptions about what it means to be human. For films this week, Dan reviews Walk Together Children, the 150th anniversary of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. In 1866, the Fisk Free Colored School was opened by the American Missionary Association and a few supporters to educate freed slaves after the end of the Civil War. Perhaps because the school was free to students, in five years it faced a severe financial crisis. 
So in 1871, the de facto music teacher and treasurer George White, a white northern missionary, formed a traveling ensemble of nine students to sing concerts as a way to raise money for the school. He called them the Fisk Jubilee Singers, based upon the Hebrew Year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. As is easy to imagine, sending a black student choir out to tour during Reconstruction was heading into terra incognita. The ensemble sang along the route of the Underground Railroad, then in England and Europe a few years later. They were successful. They raised $20,000 to purchase the land in Nashville where Fisk University is now located and is the city's oldest institution of higher learning. For the last 150 years, the now world-renowned Fisk Jubilee singers have showcased the uniquely American genres of slave songs and Negro spirituals that influenced so much of the country's later music. This 54-minute PBS documentary alternates between the spectacular live performances of the choir and the background histories of the original nine members. If you need a jolt of joyful encouragement, watch this film. I watch it on the PBS website, which released the film on the 150th anniversary of the group, October 6th, 2021. And lastly, for poetry this week, Wendell Berry's The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net from March 20th, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.